have a seat. Amen. Well, good morning. If you and I don't know one another, my name is Matthew Perez. I'm one of the elders here at Life Church. I'm a pastor on staff, and I'm glad to be here this morning bringing the Word of God to you. So this morning, at about 5.50 a.m., my phone rang, and if you're a pastor and your phone rings at 5.50 on a Sunday, one of two things has happened. If somebody is in a family tragedy or your senior pastor is really ill, it's going to be one of the two. Thankfully, nobody family tragedy that we're aware of, and we hope that's the case, but unfortunately, Pastor James is ill this morning, and so uh, he asked if I would be able to step in for him, and happy to do so. It's always a privilege to bring the Word of God and happy to do so this morning, which means we won't be in the book of James this morning, but instead, I want to encourage you, whether you have a uh, Bible or a tablet or a phone, to open to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. And um, if you have a phone, it's going to be really easy to find. If you don't, you might be like Ezekiel, we're buried deep in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. If you need to open your table of contents, man, no judging, it's cool. Um, but we're going to be in Ezekiel 37. I'm in the ESV, whatever version that you have, we hope that you will follow along with us this morning. Um, I want us this morning to consider a phrase that's found in Scripture uh, several times, and one that has been an aim that runs through my life for quite some time. It is the phrase, to walk worthy, right? It's a phrase that's found in Scripture several times when Paul writes to several different churches, this call for us to walk worthy of the Lord. And for several years now, um, that's been a, a goal of mine. I don't do it perfectly. None of us do. But it's something that runs through the background of my mind. And one that, if it hasn't through yours up to this point, I would encourage you this morning to consider that phrase this week, right? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which they've been called, right? Later on, he'll write to the church at Colossae in Colossians verse, uh, uh, verse 10 out of chapter 1. He'll again call them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul will then write later on to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, and he says, I exhort you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And so this is a phrase three different times. Paul is writing to three different churches and he's urging them with the same message, one that I think we should consider this morning individually and corporately. And that is, what does it look like to walk worthy of the Lord? What steps do I need to take in my life? What should I be thinking? How should I be building or orienting my life around this concept? Because the reality is you've walked in these doors this morning and you build your life on something. You are orienting your life around something. And I want to challenge you and encourage you this morning to think about what it looks like to build or orient your life around the Word of God, right? Because this call to walk worthy that Paul calls several churches to and one that we need to consider as well is one that can only be done when we're building our life solidly on the Word of God. Our big idea this morning that I want us to think about this morning, we're going to start in Ezekiel 37. We're going to jump over to Matthew a little bit later. We're going to be thinking about Scripture. And what I want us to think about this morning is this, that a life that walks worthy of God 
and his calling is one that's built on the Word of God, right? That's, that's our big idea for this morning, that a life that walks worthy of God and his calling is one that's built on the Word of God. So this morning I want us to think about that and consider that as we look at Ezekiel 37. And what we're going to see this morning is that the Word of God is sufficient to build a life on. It's sufficient because we're going to see that it can bring life from death. It's sufficient because we're going to see that Christ himself has a high view of Scripture. And it's sufficient because we're going to see this morning that it's God's Word that we're called to build his church upon. Let's start by looking at Ezekiel 37 and seeing that the Word of God is sufficient to build my life on because God's Word has the ability to bring life from death. Let's look at Ezekiel 37 together. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man... Can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophecy over the bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and you will, will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophecy to the breath, prophecy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophecy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people." And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I'll place you in your land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, as we come here this morning to open your word, Lord, I pray that we would lay at your feet the things that are plaguing our minds right now, that are drawing our attention and our affection from our time together. Lord, these things may matter greatly. They may be very important. They may be trivial, whatever they may be. We pray that you would set them aside and trust them to you so that you will allow us an opportunity to humbly come under your word, to help shape the way we think, to help shape the way we feel, to help shape the things that we do pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we are buried deep in the Old Testament in a book that many of us probably weren't in this morning. 
And buried deep in the middle of that book in the Old Testament, let's talk about what's going on before we get to this kind of uh, passage that's a little, little awkward to think about. As we do so, I want us to think about this concept to say that the Word of God is sufficient to build my life upon because God's Word can bring life. About 598 B.C., the Babylonian army lays siege to Jerusalem and deports God's people to Babylon. All right, God is using the Babylonians to be his instrument of judgment because God's people have not been walking in obedience. And after a very lengthy, painful standoff, Jerusalem falls in a very painful manner. And Jeremiah captures it well in the book of Lamentations, just the amount of pain and horror that takes place a bunch of individuals are uprooted and carried off into exile, and Ezekiel is one of them. He's a young man, probably in his early 20s. He was preparing to be a priest before the exile, but Jerusalem is in utter ruins. And now God's people are in Babylon, and Ezekiel is going to minister to God's people in the midst of great pain, right? These are people that are now dislocated. They're, they're, they're not in their land. They've experienced great loss great trauma. The things that uh, Jeremiah describes in Lamentations are deplorable and, and just beyond comprehension. And so these are hurting, broken people who are now enslaved in Babylon. In the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel, it covers the time up to the fall of Jerusalem. In chapters 25 through 32, Ezekiel will talk about the uh, judgment that God is going to pour out on the other nations. And then in chapter 33 through 46, we'll see about a 15-year span of God's people in Babylon after Jerusalem has fallen. And as Ezekiel writes, a phrase that will pop up many times in the book of Ezekiel, in fact, over 70 times, is this phrase, then you will know that I am Yahweh. Then you will know that I am God. It pops up in Ezekiel over 70 times times, and it pops up that many times because God wants his people to understand this, that history is not arbitrary, right? It's, it's marching towards progression, and they're not there by accident. They're not there by some cosmic mix-up. They're not there because the train tickets were screwed up at the office. They're there because history is not arbitrary. It is marching toward a progression that is ordained by God and with a purpose set by God. And God wants his people to understand that. In Ezekiel chapter 34, he'll tell the people, listen, you're where you're at right now because you had poor shepherds. You had poor spiritual leaders and you followed them into sin and you are now being punished for this. But you are not going to stay in this land forever. I'm going to bring you out of it, not because you've merited it, not because you've done anything great, not because you're wonderful people. I will bring you out of the land, back to the land I promised you because I am God. And I'm faithful to my promises. And my holiness will be on display for you and the nations. That's what takes us to Ezekiel 36. He says, you're sinful in that chapter but I will cleanse you. I will remove your heart of stone, which we just sang about. I will remove your heart of stone that is dead to me and give you a heart of flesh. The heart in the Hebrew mind was a word used to describe how a 
person thinks and how they decide. He says, I'm going to give you a whole new operating system in how you think and how you decide. And I'm going to indwell you with my spirit, the attitude that gives you the motivation to act upon the new way that you're thinking. And so what Ezekiel is telling us, uh, what God is telling us through Ezekiel to his people is, you, you don't need to just be better people. You don't just need to be more moral. You're dead, and I will bring you to life. I will give you a whole new way of operating with a new heart and a new spirit that will indwell you so you can live for me. That takes us to Ezekiel 37 and this picture of this valley of dead, dry bones. Let me show you what I mean by bringing you to life. You see here in the first two verses, Ezekiel is walking amongst these very dead, very dry, we're told at the end of verse 2, bones. And the word dry is there to let us know that these are very brittle, dead, no life whatsoever in them, right? This is not like, man, the guy was flatlining in the ER for about 60 seconds and we brought him back. We're not talking about that. This isn't somebody got pulled out of the pool and we punched some water out of them and gave them some mouth-to-mouth or whatever you're supposed to do now first aid-wise, and they're not alive. We're not talking about that. This isn't the old, like, you know, youth group classic uh, Princess Bride. They were mostly dead. It's not that, right? This is like, you know, if you ever watch the old Indiana Jones movies and he's kind of deep in the cave or deep underneath Italy and suddenly comes across these bones that have been there for centuries and centuries and they're just dried out and rotted and decayed and brittle. That's the picture that Ezekiel is showing us. This is death. And he says to him, I want you, God says, to speak my words to these dead bones. Verses 3 through 6, he says, Ezekiel, do you think these bones can live? And Ezekiel says, yeah, but by you, God, they, they, they can live. Oh, Lord, God, you know they can. All right, Ezekiel. Sorry. Speak. Speak the words of God that I give you. Speak my words, and I will bring them from death to life. I will take what is dead and breathe life into it. So in verses 7 through 10, Ezekiel speaks. And the bones come together. And there are now bodies where there weren't bodies before. These dry bones come together, we see in verse 8, right? Flesh encases these muscles that are now encasing these bones. And now standing before Ezekiel are these fully encased human bodies that are lifeless. And God says, I will send my spirit to breathe into them and bring them to life. Notice how God brings life from death by his words being spoken and by his spirit moving. That's it. Ezekiel then says in verses 11 through 14, let me, let me tell you what you're seeing here, Ezekiel. This is an odd picture, but I want you to understand this. 
These are my people who are without hope. They're dead. And Ezekiel speaks the word of God to open the graves of their hearts, so to speak. He brings life from death. He puts his spirit in them, and he does this for his holiness to be vindicated. He says, I will do this so the world may know that who I am. Now, let's think about this for a second. This is a passage many of us are not familiar with, but let's think about a passage many of us are familiar with, right? One of the first verses any child will learn that is typically known by most people who walk through churches is John 3.16, right? Many of us probably know it. We've learned it in some fashion, whether it's the KJV, the NIV, the ESV, but we understand the general concept that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. Like that's the foundational truth of scripture, right? That, that there's death apart from Christ, God loves the world and Christ comes to live a perfect life of obedience to the Father and goes to the cross to die for our sins so that we may live in him. Brothers and sisters, in John chapter 3, that passage begins with a man named Nicodemus who comes to Jesus to say, hey, like, how, do I, how do I get in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, you've got to be born again. He says, how do, I, how do I enter my mother's womb a second time? That doesn't make sense. And then Jesus starts talking about some weird stuff about the spirit blowing where it needs to. Ezekiel 37 is running through the entire backdrop of that section. If you haven't done so in a while, I encourage you, just write this chapter down, Ezekiel 37. Write down John chapter 3, meditate it on this week. It runs through that background of death to life from God's word in his spirit moving Why is God's Word, why is the Bible so important? Why is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that's encased in these uh, words, why do they matter so much? Because Ezekiel shows us here in chapter 37 a foundational truth of Scripture that it is only through the Word of God and the Spirit moving that any of us can go from dead to Him to alive in Christ in Him. And so as we think about the building our life to walk in a manner that is worthy of him, God's word is sufficient to build that life on because it is the only thing. These are the only truths that have the ability to bring us from death to life, to live for him, right? It's, it's not about like orienting our lives around cultural norms or, or, or what our high school wants us to do or getting ahead and where you, you fill in the blank what our culture tells us to chase and pursue and move our life around, and I will tell you their emptiness and death. Life is found here, is what God is telling us in Ezekiel. If I want to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, I need to begin by building my life sufficiently on Scripture because it is the only thing that has the ability to bring me from death to life. Okay, so that's a lot of confidence that I am placing in the Word of God. And I think I can do so because Christ places a lot of confidence in the Word of God. Let's leave Ezekiel and go to some passages we may be a little more familiar with, and let's turn to the book of Matthew. Maybe with James being in James, I just decided we'll just do Matthew today and do that kind of thing. Matthew 5, if you have your Bibles or your phones. I, 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 what you're saying, Pastor, is you're, you're putting a lot of confidence in the Word of God. Can I, 
Can I move confidently in the Word of God? Can I confidently shape my life around the Word of God? Well, let's see what Jesus thinks about Scripture. And what we're going to see is he holds a very high view of Scripture. And if Jesus Christ holds a high view of Scripture, it would behoove us to hold a similar view of Scripture. I'm going to look at three passages in Matthew. We're going to bounce around to see how Jesus approaches Scripture. The first one is here in Matthew 5, verses 17 through 19. He says, Do not think, this is Jesus talking, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus says here in his view of Scripture. He says, I did not show up to abolish or reject or destroy even the smallest letter in Scripture. I didn't come down to tear down or obliterate Scripture. Jesus says, I came to fulfill it because it points to me. In fact, this is an entire sermon at the end of the Gospel of Luke. All of it points to me. He says, the Old Testament points to him. When we open the Old Testament, they're not to learn good stories of morality. It's God's unfolding plan of redemption in man's rebellion in Genesis and how God uses his people and uses his son to bring his people back to him through the finished work of Christ. And all of the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of Christ. And Christ says, I'm here. I'm fulfilling what we've talked about from Genesis up into this point. He, even when he comes, will correct false interpretations of Scripture. You've heard it said, or it was said, I'm not here to abolish it. Let me tell you what it means. We'll do that several times in the Gospels. He'll correct false views of Scripture, and he'll show how God calls us to live out Scripture because none of it is abolished, he says. Not the smallest letter or stroke, not a single part. That's a pretty high view. In fact, if you flip ahead to Matthew 12, he'll talk about Scripture again. In Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42, some individuals will tell Jesus, we want to see a sign, show us that you're from God like you say you are. In John, or Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, he says, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of the generation and condemn it, for they repented in preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. All right, Jesus, we want a sign. He says, let me tell you about Jonah. You guys know Jonah. It's in Scripture. Dude who was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Let me tell you about Jonah. 
Let me tell you about the queen of the south. That's the queen of Sheba who visits Solomon in the book of the Kings, right? He says, let me tell you about these individuals. And he doesn't quote them as legends or folk tales, right? It's not like, hey, let me tell you a story about Paul Bunyan. Or let me tell you about the time George Washington cut down that cherry tree, right? These aren't folk tales or myths. Jesus says, you want a sign? Let me talk to you about scriptural, historical events. Jesus sees scripture and biblical narrative as fact. He treats them, he references them as real events. And so just from these two chapters and these two passages, we see Jesus' view on Scripture. We see, first off, that he sees Scripture as truth. I'm not here to abolish it. And he sees it as historical fact. These aren't legends or made-up stories or myths to teach you about good morality. This is about facts pointing to something. And then he talks one more time on Scripture in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, the question is on marriage and divorce. And they ask Jesus a question. Listen to how Jesus responds in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6. The Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his flesh, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Listen to how Jesus answers this question on marriage. How should we approach marriage is really what they're asking. Look at verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That, that, That marriage is foundational in the one who created them, he says in verse 4. And that one who created them in verse 4, look at the start of verse 5. In the ESV it says, and said. The one who created them said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father's mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I want you to focus on that phrase in the very beginning of verse 5, and said. Seems like a weird place to camp, but there's a reason I want us to camp there for a second. Jesus is quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Genesis is written by Moses. When Moses is writing, he's just writing narrative. Genesis 2 is not a passage where Moses stops and says, The Lord said... We see that in Scripture sometimes, right? And then the Lord said, or the Lord spoke. In Genesis chapter 2, Moses is just writing narrative. Now think about that for a second, because when Jesus talks about that passage in Matthew 19, he says in verse 4, Have you not read there's one who created from the beginning, and that one who created, verse 5, said? Look at what Jesus is doing in verse 4 and 5. He is equating Genesis 2 with the voice of God. The Creator said this. This wasn't Moses' opinion. This wasn't Moses taking a poll. This wasn't Moses just like thinking about life for a little while. He says, what I'm about to tell you is from Genesis, and it was spoken from the Creator. Why? Does Jesus connect the voice of God to that passage? I would argue he does this because to quote Scripture at any point is to quote God himself, right? Even when a divine voice is not actively seen. Jesus shows us the truths of Scripture. 
It's the word of God. As Paul would say later on in 2 Timothy, it's the word of God that is breathed out by God. It's that same passage in Ezekiel, breathed out. So let's think about this for a second and connect a couple of dots. What, what we know about God is that He is truth. Right? There's, no, there's no shifting, there's no line, He is truth. And, and what Jesus is saying is that all of this, from Genesis to Revelation, are God's words. Now, if, G, if God is truth, and everything from Genesis to Revelation are God's words, it would seem to be that we can connect the dots and say, therefore, all of these words must be truth. You follow me there? That if God is truth, and these are his words, these words must be true. Think about how Jesus views Scripture. He says, I came here to fulfill it, that it all points to me, and that it is historical truth, and it's authoritative. It's the voice of God. Which means then, when I'm walking in obedience to his word, I'm walking in obedience to his voice. When I'm submitting to his word, I'm submitting to the voice of God. On the flip side, what that means is this. When I'm walking in disobedience to the word, I'm not walking in disobedience to man's opinion. I'm not walking in disobedience to what what Paul or Timmy or Moses thought. When I'm walking in disobedience to the word of God, what this means is I'm walking in disobedience to the divine authority of God because these are his words. This is the view that Jesus has of Scripture, a very high view where he sees it as historical truth and the divine voice of God. Now, if that's how Christ viewed Scripture, we're on dangerous ground when we begin to hold lower views of Scripture. That doesn't really work with society today. Well, I don't know. Let's, let's think about how we can interpret this to fit the norms of today. You know, God wasn't, you know, when these guys wrote, they, they didn't think about the internet or as if God doesn't see the beginning from the end, right? We will all build our life on something. We will all orient our life around something. And what Jesus is telling us is when you orient it around his word, you're oriented around truthful, authoritative words of God. The Word of God is sufficient to build my life on because God's Word brings life from death, and it's highly valued by Jesus himself. Last one. Turn to Matthew 16. The Word of God is sufficient to build my life on because God's Word brings life from death. It's highly valued by Jesus. And it is sufficient, number three, to build his church, to build his people. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 18. Jesus and the boys are on a field trip to Caesarea Philippi. And this is like not one of those field trips, like we went to the baseball game today and there was no educational purpose, but so this is actually an educational field trip. When Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? I'm in verse 13 of chapter 16. They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. All right, it's a field trip. It's really what it is. 
in Caesarea Philippi, where the pagan god Pan of the Greeks is greatly worshipped. This is a pretty pagan place, right? When Jesus takes his buddies on a field trip, he doesn't take them to this beautiful cathedral. He's like, let me take you to the gates of hell. Let's talk about who people think that I am. Who, who do people think that I am? They're like, ah, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're a prophet. You know, there's a lot of opinions out there about you, Jesus. Same thing today, right? A lot of opinions out there about who he is. And Jesus doesn't let him off the hook in verse 15. He says, look, all right, enough playing around. It doesn't matter who they think I am. Who do you think that I am? Because that matters. Peter stands up because Peter always stands up. He says, you're the Christ. You're God's anointed Messiah. You're God's anointed who will establish God's righteous kingdom. Jesus says, you're right. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Again, we see that connection. Who opens Peter's eyes? Who brings death from life? Just like Ezekiel 37. It's God. He says, I'm going to build my church on this rock. The rock is not Peter. The rock is not the apostles. The rock is not slick programming or really cool ministries. The rock is not the right worship song or the right rock it out tempo, right? It's not the right activities. He's saying, you build your church on one thing and one thing only, this rock, this confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah. That's it. God's word brings life because God's word reveals the truth of who Jesus Christ is as Lord The word is what brings life from death, and it's what builds the church. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor, says this. If you want to grow your church by anything other than the word of God and prayer, don't bother, because you may not be building a church. You want to build your church by something other than the word of God and prayer, you're going to build something, but DeYoung says it's not a church, because God's people are built by the word of God. This means that God's word is more than just about salvation. It's the building tool for our lives individually and corporately to shape us as people, to shape us as a people, and to shape us for his glory. God's word reveals to us the glorious work of Jesus Christ, that he's the lamb of God who was slaughtered for the sins of the world, John chapter 1, but he's also the Lion of Judah, whose scepter will never depart from him, Genesis 49. He's not just the Messiah. He's not just the Savior. He's the Lord. And all of the world is going to be judged by him and through him. And that's it. That's what the truth of Scripture shows us. And so we're challenged today that if we want to walk worthy in a life that is built on his word is the way that we do this because anything else... Anything else is going to lead us in a way that pulls us from the holiness of God and the glory of God. The Word of God is sufficient to build my life on because God's Word brings life from death. It's highly valued by Christ, and it's what builds His people. All right, man, so I got out of bed this morning to come to church, to hear a sermon, for you to tell me, like, I should, like, care about the Bible. There's a big shocker, right? Like, That's what they paid you for, like to tell us that? Look, let's be honest, man. We know we're supposed to build our life upon the Word of God. Let's also be very honest. We struggle, right? None of us do it perfect. We struggle. If I'm called to do this, if I'm called to come under the Word, if I'm called to orient my life around the Word, how how can I 
do this well. Let me give you just a couple of tips as we close out. I'm going to give you five things to think about and how to approach God's Word to allow it to be that foundational element to build your life. Here's five things. Number one, I would encourage you to lean in and not lean back. What do I mean by that? Um, yesterday morning, it was gorgeous. It's like 90 by 8 o'clock a.m. I'm not complaining. I lived in Alaska. I'm happy. I have nothing to shovel. All right? So I wake up, and I uh, go out to my back porch. It's a gorgeous day. We lift the umbrella because, you know, I don't, I don't want to sunburn. I'm, you know, fragile. And I bring out my tea because I run on Jesus, not coffee. And I bring out my milkless cereal because if I put milk in it, neither James nor I would be up here today. And um, I open up my laptop, and my kids will tell you my new guilty pleasure is I love watching the India Premier Cricket League. I love it. Um, it is fun. All right? So I'm sitting on my back porch, and I'm watching cricket. And my kids are like, Dad, I don't get this game. There's like sticks, and they run back and forth, and they talk about yonkers and googlies, and I don't get it. I'm like, yeah, I'm learning myself. I Google stuff once in a while. But man, it is fun. It's almost as cool as baseball. It might even be cooler than baseball. Sorry, guys. I played a lot of baseball, so I think I got an opinion there. All right? But when I'm watching cricket, I'm on my back porch. Like, I'm watching it. I'm eating. I'm, like, looking around. I'm talking to my wife. I'm watching cricket. I'm, you know, uh, cleaning up the dishes. I'm watching cricket. I'm watching a bird bounce between two different trees. And I lean over my wife and say, you think he's juggling two women right now? And that's just the way my mind works. Pray for my wife, right? Like, I'm kind of half watching cricket, half not. I, like, check the internet. I go back. I watch cricket, right? And that's different than if you come over to my house and you say, you want to play Mario Kart? Now, Mario Kart's old school, but I'm going to tell you this right now. I will destroy you in Mario Kart, and I will talk trash as I destroy you, and I can say that confidently because I am good, and I will trash talk you, and if you really make me mad, I'll make you cry. I do have that ability. I had three brothers, right? So when I'm playing Mario Kart, I'm not looking at the bird. I'm not wondering if he's juggling two female birds, right? I, I am invested. I'm leaning in. I'm watching the map. I'm watching what I got. I'm throwing turtle shells at you. I'm like, hey, take that, sucker. You know, I'm, I'm having a good time, right? Some of us, we open God's word. You take the approach like me to cricket. This is one of many things that I got going on right now. Time to check the internet, talk to my kids, watch the birds, you know, now I'll fold those socks because I just don't want to be in the Word right now. Like, we find ways to distract. You've got to lean in. You've got to lean in. Like I do with Mario Kart. Just don't trash talk when you're reading the Word of God, all right? Sometimes we come in on Sunday, and let's be honest, we're checking a box. We come in on Sunday, we're like, entertain me. We come in on Sunday, and we're like, man, I don't know, he just wasn't funny enough. We're not funny. We've talked about that many times right? That's different than, man, I'm here to lean in, and I want to hear truth. Like, pastor, tell me what the words say, because that's life, what you're telling me. Lean in, not back, which means, like, I need to find ways to engage the text. It's number two. Some of you that might be taking notes. Some of you have wonderful note journals. Some of you are not note takers. That's cool. Some of you are, like, having discussions later. That's why we talk about life groups where some of us are talking about the sermon later on during the week or other passages of Scripture. We're engaging the text with other individuals. Some of you go home and you, like, download the sermon and listen again. I don't get it. I don't want to hear me once, let alone twice. 
you know, but some of you are like, man, I, I heard you good on Monday. You were good. It's like, it's the same thing, man. I don't know, you know. Um, but hey, I, I appreciate the fact that there are people who are like, man, I, I, I want to think through this. Like, engaging the text is an active, not a passive activity. Number three, pray. Like, anytime I'm opening scripture, pray. For your eyes to see, for your ears to hear, for your heart to be moldable, for your pastors in the week as they're preparing, for your life group people. Number four, do what it says. This is a novel concept, right? Like, they pay you a lot of money to say that. Actually, do it. What are the practical steps you need to take this week or next month or next year, the things that you're being challenged in the Word of God? Not because this is going to earn my salvation, but because I want to walk worthy and I'm walking in a way where, where God is glorified through me in the steps that I'm taking to grow in my sanctification as He molds me for His glory. Finally, I would say, when my kids are in the room, this is no shock to them, live out Ezra 7 10. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra simply says, I'm taking time to learn out God's word. I'm taking time to live out God's word. And I'm taking time to tell others about God's word. Notice that middle step. I'm not just absorbing content and teaching. I'm having my life transformed. It's the word of God that is sufficient to build our lives upon. It brings life from death. It's highly valued by Christ, and it and it alone is what builds the church. His word and his spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come together and think through the sufficiency of Scripture. Lord, we humbly confess that there are times in our lives that we see the truths of your word and we desire to do our own thing. We humbly confess there are times we see the truths of your word and we think they don't apply today. We humbly confess that there are times we walk into church and walk out thinking, I hope he or her heard that message today. And we confess our pride in that moment. Lord, we confess our idolatry in the fact that we come under your word only to allow other affections rob our time and attention and pull us because we, for some broken reason, find them to be more valuable than you in that moment. And we confess our sinfulness in this. Lord, may we as a people individually and we as a people collectively humbly come under your word to let it shape us for your glory. Lord, may we come on Sunday mornings and throughout the week in our private homes with our families around the table in our life groups with the words on our lips that simply say, Speak, O Lord. Pray this in your son's glorious name.